Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without the resident, you might not get to experience London. And without the resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential essential politics podcast is brought to you in association with The Resident. since March 2020. There's 5% of schools or responsible bodies that have not responded to the survey. Now, hopefully all this publicity will make them get off their backsides. Um, But uh, what I would like them to do is to respond because I want to be the Secretary of State that knows exactly in every school where there is rack and takes action. And welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday, the 6th of September, and thank goodness, in many ways, because politics is back. Here to guide us through it, we've got Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you. Hello, hello. Lovely to have you there. And we're welcoming to the podcast Alice Perry, who was a Labour councillor for 11 years, was on Labour's National Executive Committee for eight years, including one year as chair, and has been involved in drafting three general election manifestos for the party as well. Alice, hello, welcome. Hi, good morning. It is great to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you for being here. Do you think fondly of your, t- your various involvements with the Labour Party as a councillor on the NEC, or in fact drafting the manifestos? Which was the best bit? Well, you know what? It's uh, certainly been an eventful 
period in politics because my time on the NEC covered 2014 to 2022 and certainly it was lively um kept yeah like an interesting time and like some very tense times on the NEC but also some like really interesting stuff and like I think Diana Holland who was um who stood down as treasurer of the party put it best when she said it's not always been a joy but it's always been an honor and it was a really special thing to be able to be a part of that and I stand by the 2017 manifesto I you know it was a good manifesto with excellent policies in it um and uh, yeah, I'm really proud to have been a part of that as well. So, um, Absolutely. yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, it, when Keir was elected leader, um, I was elected vice chair and then chair to push his agenda through the party. And I'm like really, really proud and inspired by what Keir's been able to achieve in such a short time frame. to like, mm. like we joke that he's connected the party and bled it like, in a really short time frame and the way that he's been able to like reform the party and make Labour a you know credible serious party of government in such a short time frame is really impressive. So respect to Keir. Very interesting. He's he's kinicked it and he's blared it. <laughs> I like that. I've never heard them as verbs before. Uh, that's really good. Uh, great to have you here, Alice. Um, and we're really excited to hear your insight, your analysis, your experiences as well. So thank you very much. Um, on the podcast then this week, we're going to talk about the government's handling of crumbly concrete. It's not been particularly cautious, both literally and metaphorically. Uh, and we're going to talk about the Labour front bench reshuffle as well. And a little bit later on, on the podcast, we're marking one year since Liz Truss became Prime Minister. I am a fighter and not a quitter. Yes, that's right. A fighter, not a quitter. Uh, A year ago this afternoon, Prime Minister Liz Truss delivered her 516-word first speech in Downing Street promising to rebuild our economy and ride out the storm. She was out 49 days later. Uh, We'll be joined by James Heal from The Spectator, who, along with Harry Cole from The Sun, wrote Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss, and Mark Lisslewood, who's Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the free market think tank which, well, inspired some of Liz Truss's policies during her time in office. Uh, So we'll catch up with them a little bit later on. Right, shall we start then by discussing uh, crumbly concrete? This is, uh, well, we'll refer to it as rack throughout. This type of concrete that's been found in, well, just over 100 schools, but now real concern about it in hospitals and other buildings as well. And it's worth saying that it's known to be in hospitals and other buildings as well. And now it's about addressing that. Indeed, there's one hospital where bariatric, i.e. very obese people, can't be treated anywhere other than the ground floor for fear of the roof literally collapsing. Uh, And in in lots of places, we were hearing stories actually on Times Radio over last weekend of of ceilings being propped up with with metal, with steel supports. Uh, Obviously, classrooms and schools are having to be closed. Um, And in amongst all of this, of course, uh, we have the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their arse and done nothing? No, no, No signs of that, no? No signs of that. That was the comms blunder from Gillian Keegan the other day. Uh, Just by way of kind of offsetting that, Grant Shapps, the new Defence Secretary, has been on the media around this morning, Wednesday morning. Here's what he's been saying on concrete. There are about 22,000 schools and colleges in this country. This is impacting on 104 of them right now. And most of the time it means uh, that children will move to a different part of the school and the less uh, likely 
circumstances where a school needs to be, for example, closed for a period in order to resolve this. The average is turning out to be about six days. So we'll get this fixed. We'll get it. We'll get it resolved. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of scale, 22,000 schools, and we're talking here, of around a hundred schools so, uh, directly. So you're, you're, you're effectively saying, what was in that government graphic yesterday, most schools are unaffected. You're a canny social media buff, Grant Shapps. Do you think that's a, that, think that's a message that people want to see, that most schools are unaffected? Because people will say, well, all schools should be unaffected. Well, look, I mean, as, as, as a dad, I would say most important thing is the kids should be safe in school. The, the teachers should be safe in school. And, uh, you know, if the accusation is haven't you, you know, overreacted by, uh, you know, at the beginning of term uh, when new evidence has come about, uh, you know, jumping on this and making sure that we don't uh, uh, allow an unsafe situation, uh, which is now. Uh, where, where that's yeah. apparent to continue I, in a small number of schools, I understand. Uh, then, you know, then, 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 sure, absolutely, we have definitely acted at the higher end of that, uh, just, of that tree. But just, I'd rather do that than have uh, a, a problem in in schools. Yeah, indeed. So that's Grant Shapps. And the reason I wanted to play both of those side by side was because I feel like Kirsty Grant Shapps is conveying the government line, and that's what Gillian Keegan's been trying to do, but obviously got lost after her her slightly sweary rant. Um, what's the overview of the handling of the crumbly concrete situation as far as you're concerned? Uh, well, just to pick up on a couple of things that Grant Shapps said there, the uh, accusation isn't that the government overreacted uh, because of its undue concern for uh, children. The accusation is that the government was slow to grip this problem and it's been slow to communicate with schools about which ones are affected. Now, uh, the obligatory speaking as a dad point that he insists on inserting there, if he was a dad of a child at a school uh, where you know they were facing disruption on the back of you know COVID and teacher strikes, etc., uh, I doubt he'd be quite so uh, sanguine about the whole thing. Yes, they're right. There's there's a relatively small amount of schools that are affected. But in a hat tip to some brilliant person in Labour's digital comms team, after that, I mean, a friend of mine who used to work with me at Number 10, who shall remain nameless, sent me the whole most schools unaffected with a kind of rolling eyes emoji. Um, to which I sent back this brilliant one from Labour, uh, which said, most beach goers not eaten by big shark, uh, which just makes the point um, uh, uh, about, you know, it's, it's a simply ridiculous thing to say it's a very small amount of people. Uh, you know, it is, but that's cold comfort to people. Um, and then on the Gillian Keegan thing, look, if I was her media spared, uh, I would... Uh, be really, really upset by that. Uh, if, if nothing else, it is just unprofessional to behave like that after an interview. Now, you know, you're, and, and actually, in some ways, she's fortunate that she swore because a lot of the attraction, the attention has been taken up by the swearing rather than the point that sits underneath it, which is effectively a kind of boo-hoo poor me, why am I not getting credit for what I'm trying to do? You are the Secretary of State for Education. Like any CEO or any chairman of any company, when anything else goes wrong in the system, you are ultimately responsible for it, right? 
it is, you know, it is not your job to get all slopey-shouldered about it when things go wrong. It is your job to accept responsibility for it and to be able to communicate as clearly and reassuringly as possible that everything is being done to get it right. And to just turn around at the back of that interview when you know you... It's not like you've forgotten that you've got a mic on. You've literally just finished an interview. So unprofessional. Um, and I just, you know, it's... Yeah, it's this kind of poor me bit of it that really grated. Uh, speaking as a mother, uh, you know, it's this, it's this poor me bit of it that really grated. The swearing bit, you know, not a great look, but hardly anything to write home about. But it is your job. It is your job to take responsibility for what goes on, you know, under your watch and to be able to grip it and deal with it as clearly and quickly and practically as possible uh, and to be able to take the slings and arrows that come because that is part and parcel of being a minister, I'm afraid. Not to say, you know, I'm getting, you know, a poor press. Whatever you do to be a politician, don't go into it if you're not capable of taking, you know, criticism both fair and unfair. There was a good meme as well from the TUC that had um, a link to that and then... uh, the kind of caption unappreciated at work join a trade union <laughs> but um, like you, well, that's very good the comms on this from the, <laughs> from the from the opposition has been pretty strong it has to be said um, what have you made Alice of the evolution of the crisis itself and the handling of it I mean the whole thing is just really dark and grim and like uh, the kind of ongoing scandal of sewage in our like rivers and seas it's kind of symbolic of the like labor use it as a kind of symbol of like what's symbolic that of the narrative they'll be pushing in the next election that public infrastructure is literally crumbling and that if you can't trust the government to keep your children safe at school why would you vote for them and so this will be a huge political issue and honestly in like other circumstances you, you might see people resign over stuff like this but like we're not in a usual time um mm. and you know like every week there's something new that's writing the attack ads for labor and like you know kind of playing into that narrative of the ongoing decline of the country that labor will try and counter with like a kind of optimistic vision uh which uh, uh you know is challenging with the economic circumstance they'll be inheriting but like this alternative vision of restoring national pride and restoring pride in Britain's place in the world and so on um Mm. and like the Today programme interview with Jonathan Slater as well uh was pretty damning for Rishi Sunak so this is he used to be in the Department for Education yes that's right and talking about the decisions made in Treasury under Rishi Sunak's watch as well I think it's huge and it's going to grow and grow and the worrying thing is that it might not just be schools it could be hospitals but it could be social housing as well and there just Mm. isn't the the money to invest in the infrastructure necessary to um, replace all of this and that makes it difficult, doesn't it, for Keir Starmer as well? Um, at the top of the Times website right now is Sir Keir Starmer refuses to outline Labour's plans to fix the concrete crisis. And that's slightly problematic too, isn't it? Is that if you're not pre- saying, here's how we will address this, um, actually you can you can kind of get trapped in, in the attack in some way. If, if you're attacking them for not fixing it, but they're not presenting the alternative. I think that's why Labour will be pushing so hard for, um, especially if they're keeping conservative spending plans, for 
the government to commit to additional funding to address this because if you're taking the money from the existing capital budget like that isn't gonna be enough money necessarily to like address the issue and so like labor will be pushing the government as hard as they can on this but until the whole scale of the situation is known it's hard to know how you'd address it and it is like it's absolutely huge like potentially huge and um but as you say i think what labor will be doing is using it as a way to kind of demonstrate symbolically the impact Mm. of like 14 years of um conservative led government and it's a kind of question here will get like what would labor do instead but they'll have to keep to the line until they know and also you don't want to give away your best policies at this stage because they'll just be stolen and adopted by other parties but like it is quite hard to know what you put forward at a general election manifesto until you know the circumstances of the election so once the general election is called that's when labor set mm. the date for their well, they call it the clause five manifesto meeting it's called clause five because that's the part of the labor party rule book that outlines the policy process because we have interesting ways of doing policy within labor and that's when you'll get the manifesto but you know we've had the national policy forum meeting that's outlined the broad direction of travel for labor they're writing up the policy documents now for labor party conference it will be the last policy making conference ahead mm. of the general election and so it's a conference that you'll see more announcements and labor will be really looking to showcase um their policies what they do differently what a labor government would look like and that's why when we talk about the reshuffle as well why that's like a kind of key part of this and preparations for government work as well um there is a there is a kind of horns on a dilemma issue here for labor in as much as you know some of their attack is going to be relatively muted because they know that they are going to inherit exactly the same kind of economic difficulties that Rishi Sunak has inherited. So, you know, it's not like uh, Labour can come in and go, well, we'll fix this by, you know, increasing borrowing and spending more because uh, that's just not viable given the state of the economy at the moment. And so they're going to get dogged. You know, you've got to... It's a really difficult balance act for attack, 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 but getting dogged between now and the election uh, by every single journalist saying, well, okay, you know what would you do that's different? Because the reality is, is they're as hemmed in right now as, uh, you know, the Sunak government is, is hemmed in by uh, COVID, by, you know, uh, by the impact of the Ukraine war, by the, the tailwind of, of trust uh, and trustonomics and, and what that did to the markets, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it is, it, it, it is a little bit uh, of a balancing act for them. Just at a point of, of fact um, about the Jonathan Slater interview, and I think a lot of people were like, oh, this is Rishi Sunak, bang to rights. It's one of those classic things where two things can be apparently contradictory and true at the same time. Whilst the capital budget fell, actually the repairs and maintenance budget, which would be part of rack, you know, would be part of, of, of dealing with rack problems, actually increased uh during his time so uh it's not it's not accurate to say oh well he cut spending on on this sort of problem actually increased spending on repairs and maintenance it was the overall kind of capital build program that that was slowed down uh so it's one of those kind of classics of of that but the but you know that's right that you know this is a growing problem 
you know, Nick Gibb was doing a broadcast round yesterday, the schools minister, he said, yeah, look, it's 106 schools now, we expect that figure to rise, we are still waiting for surveys to come back, you know, and then obviously, you know, it's a public sector problem, but it's not, you know, and it's also fair to say, you know, it wasn't caused by the Conservative government, it is, like many things in life, an inherited problem uh, that goes back decades in the, in the making. I think that the handling of it and the comms around it has been uh, subpar, uh, but the causation of it um, and actually the attempt to tackle it is not, you know, it's not evidence of, of you know, poor policy making. It's been, it's been, you know, t- a process long time in the coming and long time in the tackling, but it's been handled badly in terms of communication of it and particularly around why on earth did we get two or three days out from a return to school before parents heard that actually some of their kids might, you know, might not be going back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a mess. It's a mess of a situation for sure. And it's it's growing by the day. I think Grant Chaps also in his interviews today saying that some Ministry of Defence buildings are likely to have rack in them as well. And so that's probably the first concession by, um, uh, by another Secretary of State that their department is going to be actually affected by this in that very apparent way. Um, let's go on. Alice, you mentioned the Labour front bench reshuffle. Uh, you are the one to tell us all about why we should be excited about this reshuffle. What, what has Keir Starmer achieved in his, uh, his recent reshuffle? Uh, and it is exciting. We should all be excited. Um, and I'll say, like, as we're recording it, it's still ongoing as well. They're doing a lot of the front bench positions and stuff now. But um, and there are a number of different things that are really interesting about this and that uh, we can kind of learn. Like, there's been lots of, like, initial jokes about how there are more Blairites in this shadow cabinet than there were in Blair's own cabinet. <laughs> yes. Um, but like Labour is much more than just like Jeremy Corbyn and Tony Blair. And there are lots, while there are lots of people from like Blairite traditions moving into roles, there are also like five cooperative party MPs in the shadow cabinet. Uh, there are representatives from the soft left as well. There are like people from the communitarian left as well, like Johnny Reynolds, Ellie Reeves, Rachel Reeves and so on. So um, it's a, what they've been doing is basically setting up the strongest cabinet possible with like the MPs that Labour had and like after the 2019 general election like Labour were down to less than 200 MPs but like bringing in people experience of government matters a lot Mm. and that's kind of why people like Ed Miliband and Emily Formbury um Hilary Benn are like really important for keeping their roles and so on but um everything is going to be geared towards those kind of what Labour call the hero voters, the the Tory Labour switches in those key marginal constituencies that will decide the outcome of the next general election. And everything will be like seen as a pitch to the political centre ground and to those voters that might be socially conservative, but are also pro-intervention as well. And like Louise Haig stays in role, which will be seen as important for like trade unions um, and Labour's commitment to renationalise the railways as franchises come up and so on. So... Um, it's and like the relationship as well between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner is really important because mm. when they can get that right, it is like Blair and Prescott and it is a bit magic. And it's great that like the role she's been given is like now she's formally got the title of like deputy prime minister and she's been given a really substantial policy brief that like, you know, covers important areas like planning reform and so on, but also has this campaigning role because uh, that brief um 
kind of sits on committees that look at the local election campaigns as well. She'll be out and about meeting councillors, meeting local party members, which like really plays to some of Angela's strengths. Yeah. And um, yeah, the photos they put out was a picture of like the new team with like Rachel Reeves and Angela Rayner like side by side next to Keir. Yeah. It looked like candidates for The Apprentice. It was like the opening titles for The Apprentice, didn't it? I wonder, with that comparison in mind, I wonder what would provoke Angela Rayner into punching somebody in the street um, with the comparison to Prescott. Kirsty, what do you make of um, of the reshuffle and of the analysis? Uh, well, I think uh, it's more like the relationship between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown than it is between Tony Blair <laughs> and John Prescott, if I might mischievously say that. Um, this, for me, was all about the rise and rise and rise of Rayner. Um, uh, I don't uh, expect that to uh, end with uh, singing in harmony in a Labour government. Um, Too much water under the bridge and too much of an alternative power base. So this one will run and run, as they say. Uh, I really want to know what Lisa Nandy did to upset Starmer. Uh, You know, she's... Uh, you know, she's a she's a good performer. She, you know, has got all the right kind of uh, kind of northern credentials. She's plain speaking. She's good on the media, uh, and that was a you know. And, and hats off to her. She said, "Look, I'm a team player," and she's not briefed and all of that sort of stuff. So, well done to her. But I would feel quite bruised by that uh, if I was her. And it's also interesting to note that a lot of the big players have not moved. You know, so he you know he doesn't want to move. People like Yvette Cooper, David Lammy, uh, Ed Miliband, those have all stayed in place. So it's the sort of mid-ranking shadow cabinet roles rather than the, you know, the, the big beasts such yeah. as they are uh, at the top of the shadow cabinet table that have been reshuffled. So I think all of that is, is pretty interesting stuff. Um, and I just... You know, I think it's an over. You know, I think it's overwritten to say, oh, you know, it's a purge of the soft left. Uh, I think he's just putting, you know, a few more uh, loyalists in, much as you know, Rishi Sunak now feels that he can move to put a few more loyalists around the shadow cabinet. I think Keir Starmer, and rightly so, feels emboldened, politically emboldened, to be able to put more of his people in place. Um, and I will just mischievously make one other point. I thought this at the time that uh, Labour, that somebody apparently leaked some Labour polling. Um, and I thought the only purpose of leaking that pol- Labour polling was to point out to Red Wallers that Labour privately referred to them as hero voters now. Um, and I note that that appears to be something that uh, that is being encouraged to be said. And you'll hear a lot of hero voters think in the run-up to the election we think you're heroes come vote for us uh, so i don't believe that that leak was uh, an accidental one um and look hats off to for calling them hero voters and getting that out there uh, it's all part of the game um and uh, it's naughty of me to point it out but you know that's my job <laughs> um, and there was some like I think it's an important point about there not being a purge of the soft left, that people like Angela Rayner and Annalise Dodds as well has a really important role as chair of the National Policy Forum. Um, And also some interesting changes like Pat McFadden's role as well, like someone who has become increasingly influential and important. And like he started to uh, expand his like brief way beyond uh, what his role was so this new role that he's taking up and with like Ellie Reeves appointed as like his deputy as well 
um, is going to be really a crucial part of Labour's preparations for government work. Now, Sue Gray's in post as well, um, and a really good person to have doing that. And then a big compliment to Darren Jones, like seen as a rising star in the party, to replace mm. him in that role and like big shoes to fill. But people are very excited by Darren Jones as well. So, and also like lots of strong media performers promoted. Um, and still like political diversity within the shadow cabinet and the front bench team too, which mm. is important. Um, it did. I, I noticed actually it didn't get a particularly great write up from the voice from that point of view. Um, uh, I, I think that's that's caused quite a lot of uh, ructions um, in terms of sort of diversity and the fact that only David Lammy has uh, sort of survived in kind of key major cabinet roles. Um, the Voice is, uh, describes itself as Britain's favourite black newspaper. It's a, an African-Caribbean newspaper in the UK. And, and it's something that Labour are very alive to, particularly with the prospective parliamentary candidate selections and like looking to encourage um, more diverse candidates to stand, which is like easier said than done. It's great. Yeah, that and, yeah and yet I think there's only one... Uh, black candidate so far selected in a safe Labour seat. Um, this is a... I appreciate I appreciate that there is more to this election than just safe Labour seats. Uh, well, how but... to define a safe Labour seat? Like, you could argue that anywhere with a majority of less than, like, 12 or 15,000 could be winnable. That's fair. So, like, you know, like, Adam Jogi <laughs> in Newcastle under Lyme, like, could well um, win that seat. Um and so on. So it's like, it's quite interesting to see what will happen. Although, you know, we've been, we're expecting the polls to narrow. We've been expecting the polls to narrow for about a year. Um, and yeah, we'll see what, what kind of churn you'll have at the next election. And that's an interesting thing to consider with the reshuffle now, because say this is the team set until the election, like six months after, if you've got an influx of uh, diverse, talented um, uh new MPs with lots of experience and, you know, returning MPs, people like Douglas Alexander and so on. You might have a reshuffle six months in then that move these people into uh, some of the positions. And there'll be lots of positions to fill because, as I said, Labour are down to less than 200 MPs now, but who knows what the makeup of the next parliament will be. But we know with so many MPs standing down from both Labour and Conservative sides, there'll be a, a lot of new MPs anyway, so the next mm. parliament will look and feel quite different. Both, thank you for that. Uh, Alice and Kirsty Sting with us. Uh, still to come on Whitehall Sources. I will lead the Conservatives into the next general election. Definitely. Well, look. Yeah. I'm not focused on internal debates within the Conservative Party. But you need to be, don't you? I am know, you know me. you need to be in order to stay in office. We'll be marking a year since Liz Truss became Prime Minister. James Heal from The Spectator and Mark Littlewood from the IEA Think Tank will join us next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. Britain's shortest-serving Prime Minister had, well, really quite the roller coaster administration, didn't she, Liz Truss? It was wild, it was short, it was intense. James Heal from The Spectator, who, along with Harry Cole from The Sun, wrote Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss, is here to break it all down for us. Hello, James. Hello. And also on the podcast, Mark Lisslewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the free market think tank, who I think it's fair to say, Mark, inspired a lot of Liz Truss's policies in office. Would you, would you take that badge of honour? I think inspired quite a bit of her general thinking, um, I would absolve myself of the specific policies, <laughs> I think. <laughs> right, OK. Uh, we can unpack that a little bit as, <laughs> as we go through. Um, James, first of all, then, let's come to you. I was reading your piece in the Sunday Times, actually, at the weekend, kind of capturing the 50, approximately, days of Liz Truss. Oh, my goodness, it was chaotic. It was chaotic. To see it all laid out like that, it was really quite something. How do you reflect on Liz Truss's time as Prime Minister a year on? Stressful. Uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, we started writing the book in mid-August and talked to some of the people... It was really interesting kind of seeing her rise over 12 years uh, in Parliament, 10 years as a minister. And when we started writing it, of course, she comes in, uh, day one announces the biggest kind of market intervention in peacetime history. Uh, and then day two, of course, the Queen dies. And we think, well, that's going to be the angle. It's, you know, how did this one-time teenage Republican end up leading the nation through the morning? And we were going to finish the book by the end of October. Uh, and the end... So was she. She was finished by the end of October, unfortunately. <laughs> and um, it was just extraordinary to watch you know, the shortest selling premiership in British political history play out, uh, going to that party conference and seeing the Tories just turning on each other, what the markets were doing, the power of the markets, a salutary reminder. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn. And um, it's going to be a debate that's playing out in the Conservative Party 
not in government for years to come. Mm. Wait, is it possible to say where where it all went wrong, James? Uh, you know, there are potentially any number of flashpoints in that fifty days. Uh, we we attribute a lot to the budget, I suppose. Uh, is that fair in hindsight? Is that where it derailed properly? Yeah, so we're recording this on the day, the anniversary, one year of this trust entering Downing Street on the first day. I think there were mistakes bedded in from the start. Uh, there were, you know, she went, for instance, for an all uh, 31 of the 30 of the 31 people in her cabinet backed her. So it was a loyalist cabinet. I think that was a mistake. You know, as one trust, I put it to me. Some of the people like, you know, Grant Shapps and Michael Gove, you know, were always going to knife her. Uh, they So they, why not have them inside the cabinet, you know, rather than out there publicly against her? Um, so that was that element. There was also things like the fact that she wasn't going to do a spending review anymore, which she previously committed to. There was the energy price cap, which was much bigger than I think a lot of green marketeers were, were telling her. Um, but then equally, you know, you can't get away from the fact that it was the mini budget. And I think the week leading up to mini budget will be uh, analysed by historians to come because I think a lot of things went into that. And I think Treasury officials themselves have said um, you know, that there was a lot being asked of them. Normally, a kind of fiscal statement like this would take about six months preparation twice yearly. Instead, it was being asked to do uh, in a couple of weeks what they normally would take in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, Kirsty, when you think back on, on Liz Truss's time, what are you, and hearing what James is saying there, how, how, how are you reflecting a year on? So, uh, I, you know, I like to research for the podcast. I read those uh, Downing Street chapters again, uh, just to kind of refresh my memory. It's a brilliant book, by the way. I recommend anybody uh, buys it and reads it. Um, uh, it is a it is a great read. And I read those chapters again, and I think James is absolutely right. A lot of the seeds were sown uh, almost from day one. I think there was, you know... And knowing how Downing Street works, I think one of the kind of nerdy points I'd want to make about it is, you know, there is a difficulty in Downing Street if you have unclear lines of, uh, you know, sight into into the Prime Minister, confused roles, overlapping roles. A lot of that dysfunctionality was born in right at the start uh, by how the sort of organisation was set up by Liz Truss and the fact that they moved a lot of people out and there were lots of sort of overlapping roles. I think that was problematic. I think some of it, you know, which is brought home by the book, is about some of the circumstances and the timing. I think James and Harry bring home this sense of hubris that is brought out by uh, by what happens after, you know, the, Her Majesty dies and it creates this sort of almost imperious feeling, uh, uh, which is which is fascinating to read about. But also, a lot of it is about Liz herself. You know, Liz was always a woman in a hurry. She was always a woman that was, you know, very had very sort of blinkered thinking about what it is she wanted to to achieve. And I think some of that combined with some of how Downing Street was set up, which was that there wasn't enough challenge in the room for her to say, hold, you know, to say to her, mm. hold on a minute, all sowed the seeds of, of those destruction. And, you know, I don't, I don't buy the idea that it was, you know, uh, good policies, poorly kind of communicated. It was, you know, it was too much, it was too fast. Uh, and, it, you know, it's easy to see how quickly that would unravel. Um, uh, after the budget, I think the pound plunged to the lowest level since 1985 within within a matter of minutes. But a lot of it, for me, from a nerdy point of view, is brought home brilliantly in the book. Is if you don't get the kind of 
mechanisms right within Downing Street, it, it, it sows the seeds very early on for all the dysfunctionality. Mm-hmm. Mark, come in on this then. What what do you make of this? Is it about just the, the kind of? Uh, I, I guess my question is: Did it have to be like this for Liz Truss? Was it inevitable that it was some sort of chaotic fifty days and she was gone again? No, I don't think it was inevitable. Of course, Callum, one of the uh, great movies of last year was Everything Everywhere All at Once, and although that was a movie that won various accolades, I think that would be quite a good way of describing how Liz Trust approached her premiership. We've got to do everything everywhere all at once. There was no sense of sequencing. Um, I don't think it was inevitable that uh, she would be out in such a short period of time. But in speaking to her since her premiership, uh, I think she sees it that she sort of had two choices. One was let's go steady as she goes. As James was saying, let's sort of hold the party together. I need to reach out to the Rishiites and those who didn't back me. And uh, it's been a bruising leadership campaign. And let's just sort of, you know, link arms and sing come by R and, you know, perhaps do a few policy twiddles. Uh, we'll probably lose the next election anyway. But, you know, we've got a couple of years in office. We might be able to do one or two things. Or you decide this is probably going to fail but I'm going to try and land this plane on a very, very thin landing strip. I'm going to gamble. I am actually going to try and do a whole range of very sort of radical things and just see if I can get it off the launch pad. And I think one of her failings was she underestimated the the scale of opposition against her, both within her own party, but also in the institutions, that she was surprised that there was so much pushback on the mini-budget, but... Uh, there would have been a huge amount of pushback on other things that didn't even make it to the launch pad. All her sort of supply side reforms and planning reforms to try and get the economy going again. So consciously or subconsciously, I think she knew she was going to take a big gamble. Um, she was going to it was going to be a risk, and she was going to hope to put it off, but thought that the odds were against her. I think her errors mm. were trying to do everything in a matter of days rather than months. Most of her bigger changes didn't need to be put. The mini-budget could just have been her campaign pledges to reverse the national insurance rise and the corporation tax rise. And then they could have waited till the full November budget for whatever else they wanted to do. And some of it, to my mind, did almost seem as if it was sort of deliberately provocative. I'm a free marketeer. I'm all in favour of lowering the top rate of income tax. I think the 45p rate is too high. Uh, I don't think it raises any meaningful money. I think it's more about virtue signalling than good economic policy, etc., etc. So uh, on a kind of intellectual basis, I was willing to applaud that tax cut. But politically, very strange hill to choose to die on. Um, Not a major uh, economic necessity to lower the top rate of tax from 45p to 40p. As I say, I favour it, but I don't think it's a game changer. Uh, and was likely to cause considerable consternation about giveaways to the rich and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, there was a bit of humorous. I still think her her basic diagnosis was right, and actually, a year on, uh, is being echoed by others. I mean, not least Keir Starmer, you know, some of his actual narrative is, you know, we've got to go for growth. The biggest problem in the economy is a lack of growth. His recipe for that would be rather different to Liz Truss's, I suspect, but nevertheless, if you were trying to look through the, the ashes and the embers of the Trust administration, she has perhaps moved the dial on public discourse. And I think it's been right here that the biggest problem in the economy has been an absence of growth. 
That's really interesting. We'll bring Ellis in on the on the Starmer point in just a sec. But James, I want to put that to you. The deliberately provocative is how Mark described it. I think I saw you nodding at that point. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think you've got to pick your battles in politics. And look, I think Mark, I think, makes a number of you know good arguments. But I think there's a difference between think tanks and political parties. And so, you know, I was having a, a drink the other night with um, a member of uh, someone who knew, knew Margaret Thatcher pretty well. And they made the point to me, you know, Margaret Thatcher complained the memoirs, I never had more than six good men and true in my cabinet. So you can have people in your cabinet and still do very you know, radical free market thing. I think the kind of point is about party management. I suppose maybe that's more my preoccupation, being a parliamentary lobby journalist, a seedy hack, as it were. But I think in terms of you know, the style, I definitely think you can bring people in. And it seems some of the moves she made uh, were almost calculated to offend. And I'm not sure, really, if you look at the kind of great free market leaders from you know, recent past, they were great communicators. They were people who knew how to sell a policy. They knew how to bring people with them. And it's also about how you choose your targets and, and I think, as Mark says, sequencing. Um, and I think that Liz struggled to communicate what she was trying to do. I think that there were battles that, you know, as he says, could have been avoided or not picked. I mean, the, the raising the cap on bankers' bonuses, that was not something the city particularly wanted. It was not particularly helpful. And it gave her a lot of negative publicity all before, the week before, Labour Party conference. And so I just think a lot of these things, you know, it's about tactics and strategy. And I think that you know, they may have a lot of merit in themselves. And I will be interested to see how, the, as I say, the Conservative Party after the next election chooses to respond to all of this. But I do mm. think that a, a lack of political intelligence from going into Downing Street was a, was a key part of it. And the backroom staff was key as well. Um, and I think that senior, and what Kirsty says as well, that senior institutional knowledge is important. And I think that could have helped them weather a lot of the storms they faced. But also, I think, you know, the communications-wise and, and, and facing MPs-wise and bringing them on board with this, bearing in mind they just had a very divisive leadership contest at which Liz Truss only won 32% at the final MPs voting stage. So I mm. think perhaps there's a way of doing things where you can achieve your outcomes uh, rather than the processes perhaps where you might intellectually be right, but politically you're going to lose along the way. Alice, come in on this then. What do you, what do you make of, of the Liz Trust Premiership and all that we're talking about, and indeed Mark's point that, you know, has she actually changed the narrative here, including within the Labour Party? Um, it's a really interesting point. I mean, ultimately, there's a cautionary tale there as well about the danger of unfunded spending. Um, and for Labour, like that means that, you know, the economic credibility that Keir and Rachel, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, Johnny Reynolds have been working really hard to establish kind of shows how important that is. And from a party management point of view that James was raising, it kind of shows why standing by that economic credibility and, you know, unpopular decisions like within the party around keeping conservative spending plans like why you can't just have unfunded spending commitments um but you know labor will be like highlighting uh, over and over again how the conservatives crashed the economy like you if you look at the polls there's an absolute turning point like labor's 20 point lead kind of started with the mini budget and people are still feeling the effects with their mortgages um, and your people will be locked into higher mortgages when the next election comes, even if inflation drops. So it's something that, um, you know, there's lots of attack lines on like Labour's social media today. And it's something people will be reminding. But we did kind of think the polls would narrow more when Rishi became leader. And that hasn't happened either. And like to go back to Mark's point, it is quite interesting, like Labour... If they don't want to raise income taxes, they don't they, you know, have the tax reforms around uh, ending charitable status to private schools, non-DOMs, windfall tax oil and gas, like um, the reforms to carried interest and stuff, but nothing else beyond that. 
then you do have to grow the economy and create the conditions in the economy for it to grow. And it was quite interesting seeing Republicans in America tweeting praise of Rachel Reeves. But um, that is the approach that Labour's taking. And um, mm. that kind of growth agenda is something that people are thinking about here and elsewhere around the world too. Mark, uh, that is, that, you know, that's interesting, isn't it? That is perhaps a legacy then of Liz Truss. Uh, would you, would, is that what you would say, that that is the, the long-term, one of the long-term impacts that she's had? Yes, uh, I do. And for all that we can go through the, the sort of chaos of the, the 50 days, I would still argue that her, her broad analysis was, was right. Um, James is right. I'm making a kind of think tank economic point here rather than a political point and all of the things mm. that politicians need to worry about how you communicate things are all very important and uh, she didn't get her language right I, I keep saying to her even now please stop talking about growing the pie you don't grow a pie you bake a pie you know I mean it's just it's just it's just a weird economic metaphor economists talk about it all the time we've got to grow the pie and not worry about how you slice the pie but you can imagine people at home watching on television thinking, what on earth is this person on about? I mean, what, what, what is this bakery metaphor? So the comms was wrong. But the, the basic analysis that Britain's economy has been performing, um, you know, I'm not trying to make a partisan point here, but um, badly really since the millennium, let's say, you know, the growth has been poor. Um, as Alice says, you know, if you want more spending, and we're sort of taxing at the max, then you've got to find other ways of growing the economy. We've been spectacularly unimaginative in that regard and have vast waves of restrictions on growing the economy, very tight planning laws, heavy-handed regulation in a lot of areas. All that analysis, I think, has been proven correct. And, you know, under what some people might see as a more sort of stable and cautious Sunak premiership, all of these problems remain with us. I mean, there's sort of arguments about whether Britain's going to tip into recession or not, which are a bit, I think, on the margins, because there's not much difference between the economy growing at 0.1% and declining by 0.1%. But the truth is, we're basically flatlining, and more or less have been for 20 years. And um, uh, although the execution of a programme may not have got off the launch pad, uh, she was onto something. That analysis was right. The, the country had been drifting in the wrong direction and problems were building up, making spending commitments impossible to meet, taxes ratcheting ever, ever higher and higher, which of itself, I would argue, dampens growth. So um, the medical diagnosis, pretty much bang on for me, even if you think the surgery was botched. It's <laughs> yeah, a nice way of putting it. Uh, James, um as we again to be go back to your kind of telling of the the time of trust, um, mm. there are so many things like the rebellion at Tory conference, the U turn on the forty five p tax rate, the anti growth coalition that popped up as well. This was all within a matter of a few days. All of those things happening, the, the number of flashpoints in such a short space of time is just astonishing. Yes, there'll never be another party conference like it. I mean, I still went to the Labour one the previous week, and then the Conservative one. And it was the inversion of what normally happened. Labour was very boring and business focused. The Tories were all tearing each other apart. Uh, I was there on the first night and um, on the Sunday. And that was the night that we know now that Liz was talking to Quasi, summoning him to the hotel room to say, we've got to rip the sticking plaster off. Having had a whole succession of Tory MPs that day come up with concerns about it, uh, 
this, and I think to her credit, then went and had to give a very hard speech, I imagine, to the Conservative Home 1922 drinks. Uh, she then left. Uh, there was then um, a reception for Tories and comms, and, and I remember Penny Morden was standing there to a whole room of you know, several hundred people, and she said, well, Bayana's speech thus. Well, what have we learned from, apart from this conference? We've learned that the policy's great, but the comms are shit. And this, you know, then obviously produced 10 seconds of raucous laughter. At the same time, then, there was a reception going on, the chairman's drinks upstairs, which I went to. And outside, I hear this commotion going on. And I go outside, um, and it's a back and forth between Harry Cole, my co-author, and Adam Jones, who's the director of communications number 10. We're running the story. You know, you give us an on-record statement. We're running it now unless you deny it. Oh, I can't confirm anything. Back and forth, back and forth. Watching like a sort of game of you know, communication tennis or something. And it ends with the sort of lift, lift door literally closing. Harry then sending a message and the story dropping at 20 past midnight. And the member of the cabinet then came out and said, thanks for that, Harry, you've ruined my conference. Put down the, the drinks and then sort of disappeared into the night. And the whole thing, the news then swept through. Um, and of course, the handling of that in a farcical manner. And it just meant in the next few days, you know, the whole cabinet, there was sort of Robert Buckland and Penny Mordaunt were all kind of, you know, having a go about the, will there be benefits uplifting, et cetera. Tory activists were furious and telling their MPs this to their face in that conference bubble. The media were certainly not short of people going around giving angry quotes, I'll say that. Um, and <laughs> it was really clear that, you know, the cabinet discipline had broken down. Liz went to that speech on Wednesday morning, a wet, grey dreary Wednesday morning, the same conference hall where she'd really, I suppose, sort of made her name eight years previously, uh, giving that speech about port markets and being in Beijing. And the same venue, she then uh, gives the speech about the Anti-Growth Coalition. And thereafter, it's really about when the pressure then comes on Friday, when the OBR gets in touch and says, we've got a 72 billion black hole. And it's about trying to rectify that. And it, it all really went downhill from there when Kwasi Kwasang then flew out to uh, Washington mm. and meetings with the IMF. And then the scene reminiscent of Dennis Healy in 1976. Incidentally, I think, you know, a time perhaps when the Treasury economists also got it wrong, maybe for the trust sites listening to this. Um, he then comes back having had trust in meetings with senior uh, government officials, warning them that we need to U-turn on corporation tax. And uh, then learns that he's going to be sacked from a tweet from Steve Swinford in the car coming back. Uh, then had this 20-minute meeting. Jeremy Hunt's then brought in. And from there, it's all got down. Within, within a week, she's gone because you then have on that Wednesday, uh, the morning you have the team falling out behind the scenes. Um, Jason Stein and Ruth Porter pointed the finger at each other. Uh, you then in the afternoon have this Home Secretary resign over an immigration deal. And in the evening you have the fracking boat. So you have every bit of the operation collapsing. The backroom staff, the front bench team, and keeping the troops in line and so that Wednesday evening Thursday morning it was all up and then she resigns Thursday morning and then leaves the building on the Tuesday thereafter I think the interesting point was when I think I realised the game was up and I was sort of thinking aloud as I was speaking to some friends or it might even have been a journalist at the Conservative conference was uh, lots of people were still trying to understand what trustonomics was and I did my best to interpret it by saying there were sort of three plaques to three planks to trustonomics. One was to reduce the tax burden. 
One was at some point to uh, have some spending restraint, which although they didn't go for a spending review, the, the aim seemed to be that they wouldn't uplift spending with inflation. So inflation would do some of the heavy lifting of meaning that there were cuts in real terms. And the third was going to be an array of controversial regulatory reform, like uh, liberalising planning laws and the rest of it. And then I found myself saying aloud, and they've done the popular bit. They've done the tax cuts. <laughs> right? And now they've got to move on to the two unpopular bits. So having done the popular bit, the supposedly popular bit, and found it blowing up in one's face, how on earth were they going to navigate through the much more supposedly difficult bits of reducing spending and ripping up regulation? And I think as those words passed my lips, it sort of dawned on me that uh, this was not going to be feasible for many days or many weeks longer politically. Kirsty, that's an interesting thought, actually, because I remember we launched the podcast around the kind of chaotic uh, disintegration of Liz Truss's premiership. Um, what was the point for you, do you think, when you when you looked and you thought, oh, hang on a second, this is this is it? Uh, I, it, look, it was conference, and I think it was the you know Harry's uh, revelation about uh, the forty five p tax being U turned on, which just it hit like an absolute bomb at conference, and it just sparked kind of a free for all of people sort of jockeying and jostling, and every MP I spoke to started to say, "Look, I don't see how this is tenable." Um, so I think it was, uh, you know, I, I think for me that was the point where I thought this is only a matter of time. I didn't, like most people, I'm not sure I thought it was going to unravel quite as quickly as it did. There's a lovely line in the book where um, where they, uh, where they Harry and James point out that when she went to give her resignation speech at Downing Street, she'd been there such a little time that the original marks where the lectern had been placed... Uh, when she came into Downing Street, you could still see those on on the on the on the ground outside Number Ten. That's how quickly the turnaround was. So I think it was then. Um, uh, James Callan and I were talking before uh, the podcast about. I I think there's probably that conference was so extraordinary uh, for me. I've never and I've been to a lot of conferences. I have to say, I've never been to one a Conservative conference like it. I think there's probably a book to be had in that one uh, I'm just going to plant a seed for you and Harry about flat. you can broaden it out to Flashpoint conferences, Brighton Labour 2018 whatever but I think there's a, there's definitely a book to be had in it and that for me was the point where I thought you know this this can't go on uh, it was like it was like all out warfare um, and hats off to Labour because the, what we had we had the conference, then we obviously had the budget and the market's reaction to that. And then what really drove home the knife was Labour very carefully and cunningly putting down a vote about fracking, where obviously Liz Truss's position and the manifesto position uh, were different, which forced all kinds of confusion about how MPs should vote, which led to, again, probably one of the most extraordinary nights in the Commons anyone has ever known with you know, the, the, the party whip in tears and no one could tell for a while whether the chief whip had resigned or not and allegations of Tory MPs being bundled into to the lobby to vote and uh, it was absolute carnage and chaos. Uh, but I think for me it all started at conference and I thought, yeah, this is not, mm. not going to last. Yeah. James, that fracking vote, infamous, notorious chaos. What's the, what's the insider uh, take on that? And um, uh, Wendy North, uh, Morton running around, nobody's quite sure who's in charge. I mean, it was it was chaos. 
I mean, there isn't so much of an inside story because it all played out uh, pretty much semi-publicly. <laughs> I, I think the key point is this, is when you can no longer keep the tensions that exist behind every government behind the scenes, they always exist, when they spill out into the open. And the two, two things we've identified as key flashpoints are the conference and then the events in Parliament where you saw the reports that the chief whip was running through the lobbies, uh, you know, with tears in her eyes, uh, where the deputy chief whip was quoted by multiple onlookers as saying, you know, I'm effing furious, not going to take this anymore. And um, it, it really, at that point, where where Tory MPs are together discussing in the bar, they're seeing it all play out. They've seen the basic administration in a way which even Theresa May's government never really broke down to that level playing out. And they thought, look, this is over. And basically what was keeping trust in position at that point, I think, was the same thing what kept Boris in for a while, which is that there's no clear successor, you know, who was going to be a next kind of automatic succession. Um, but the fact it all fell apart so rapidly um, suggests to me and it had to be someone else rather than that. Um, but the fracking vote was just a great mm. example of the tensions that exist in the Conservative ranks, I think, between you know those who were loyal to mm. a non-ideological position, those loyal to conflicting demands of the 2019 manifesto and in some ways a lot of the, the, the this parliament's history the past four years incredible brexit covid all of that since 2019 you can find a lot of the kind of problems of that in, 20, in the 2019 manifesto which i think promised me all things to all men and it's the difficulty for the conservative coalition i think is what position do they choose in future and in that debate about you know should they be more red wall lean into the realignment should they go back to their blue wall base is it trust like or sunak i I'm interested to see what you know Liz's own view is going to be on that because she's standing again in her Norfolk seat. Mm. Uh, got a safe majority of, I think, 26,000. So she'll be a voice in the next parliament. And uh, I suspect the party, not the country, will definitely be looking at what went wrong. Uh, all I would say is if you're going to, when you're appointing your team, and again, we go back to what Kirsty was talking about, the original sin of the sort of trust project before she even entered Downing Street was the cabinet post and appointing Wendy Morden, who wasn't her first choice as chief whip. That proved to be... A disaster, you know, she's gone out and said, uh, as chief whip, I never lost a vote. Well, you, she did lose a prime minister. And, uh, you know, that was a big reason I think the political intelligence operation wasn't up to scratch. Just by way of conclusion, uh, Mark, then to pick up on some of that, you know, James says she's standing again. Some of the themes of our conversation today, hubris, the determination in her policies. Um, perhaps she's a victim of timing and context and she firmly believes that. Do you think Liz Trust fancies another shot? No, I think it's unlikely that she would ever run for the leadership again. But uh, I don't think she's going to give up on her agenda. Um, mm. And one of the... Th I mean, I think she also had a, 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 a whole load of rotten luck, right? I mean, Alice has made the point about interest rates going up and that being a pinch um, point. I mean, we were, the, the era of low interest rates was coming to a natural close. You might argue that Truss and Kwarteng accelerated that, but we have got used to living off unbelievably cheap credit for 15 years, and at some point there needs to be a correction there. You probably don't want that correction to happen in the first two weeks of your premiership, but nevertheless, that was an inevitable thing that was coming. Uh, and I think she's also uh, shown how it's near impossible for a party to reinvent itself in government. Right, you, you can hand over the reins from one prime minister to the to the next. Of course, that happens quite commonly. Indeed, a majority of recent prime ministers have come to power not at a general election, but by you know office being handed to them while their party's in power, from Gordon Brown to Theresa May to Boris Johnson to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. But to reinvent the party's political agenda and priorities, 
while you're in office, I think is near impossible. You are wedded into the previous manifesto. It's near impossible to do a U-turn. Of course, you can deal with unfolding, unpredictable crises like COVID. Um, but to actually reinvent your policy platform uh, when you've been in power for 12 years, I think is impossible. So rather like James, I'm intrigued to see, assuming the Conservatives lose the next election, which is where the smart money is, and there's a, uh, a Labour government, or at least a Labour-led administration, even if Labour don't win an overall majority, that the Conservatives will reflect on the 50 days of trust. But I think they'll have to reflect on the whole 13 years, right? There are lessons for the Conservatives to draw over their entire period in office, which will be 14 years by the next election, not just over the, whatever it was, you know, seven weeks of, of Liz Truss. And I suspect a lot of Conservatives are going to be saying, heck, we've been in power for 14 years. How is it that tax rates are at their highest point since Clement Attlee's post-war government? Uh, how is it regulation's gone higher? How is it that the deficit still has not been cracked and spending is out of control? What on earth is the legacy, not just of 50 days of Liz Truss, but of 14 years of Conservative government? The United Kingdom is not obviously a more conservative place at the end of that tenure. Yeah, look, I think for me there is a there is a very important legacy point, and I suspect it's probably where you know Liz Truss would focus more of her power because after what happened in the in the uh, budget last year, I think she should probably stay away from economics broadly speaking at the moment. Where she is a hundred percent right, and where. Labour have moved into ground and slightly backed away, and I think that's a mistake, is around planning and what planning can do for growth in this country. Our planning laws are so you know, sclerotic and out of date. They are an absolute barrier on growth and prosperity in this country. They need radical overhaul. I think you know, uh, we saw a coalition yesterday right across the Conservative Party about uh, around the energy bill about getting uh, onshore wind farms built uh, which will ultimately lead to you know greater energy security uh, and lower bills i think everybody reads everyone is in danger in politics at the moment of read, reading the wrong lesson from you les i think there's a difference between making people pay individually for climate action at the moment but there is a great story to be had for this country around reforming the planning system transforming our industry in this country and growing and growing renewable industry as the as the you know not just for energy security for for, for prosperity and sustainable growth in this country and that's where i think both uh, both parties should should focus. If you're going to go on a kind of hopey, changey bit going into the election, it's harder for the Conservatives because obviously planning matters are much more of a kind of you know bugbear in the South Wall. It's, but you know I've been surprised by how uh, you know how easily frit Labour have been around Ulez. But that for me is the is the great kind of push in the next. 10, 20 years is prosperity through, you know, a new renewable green industry, which is sustainable jobs and growth. But you've got to tackle the planning system and in that you have to be radical. And, and the good thing about tackling the planning system is it doesn't come with the price tags attached that other kind of public service reforms might. So, you know, planning reform is seen as a big pillar for labour, as is like the green prosperity plan and growth through green technology and um, all of that. like Although, how do you respond to the Inflation Reduction Act with no money? It is very challenging. So you're looking to things like planning reform where you can grow the economy. Um, 
uh, things like changes to procurement and so on. So uh, it is interesting. And to kind of go back to the point about this trust as well, like Labour had to go for a huge um, period of reflection and, you know, looking at ourselves and, you know, asking ourselves like what we stood for. And after 14 years, you, you run out of ideas, don't you? So, like we live in a democracy and the public have decided it's time for a change. And there'll be a, now a period that the Conservatives have to go through reflecting on um, the kind of party they are in the way they did in the run-up to 2010, because it does feel a bit like that run-up to 2010, doesn't it? I remember mm. knocking on doors back then and trying to convince ourselves that it could still be all right and we could still win the election, but the, the kind of game was up, really, like it is for the Conservatives it wasn't, now. It wasn't to be... It's going to be quite a challenge for Alice's party. Unlike, I mean, if we assume that Labour comes to power, unlike Labour coming to power in 1997, when Tony Blair came in, you know, the economy was in a pretty damn good state, right? Um, you know, growth was ticking along nicely, um, and uh, he could do quite, yeah, quite a, you know, wide berth. There was quite a lot of room for manoeuvre. Um, I say this with no joy at all, but if Keir Starmer becomes prime minister, he's going to become prime minister at a time of severe economic challenge from his first day in number 10 Downing Street. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something Labour are very alive to and concerned about and why it's really important to push the government now to uh, find resources for the crumbling public infrastructure and the schools and hospitals made of concrete mm. that might literally collapse. At this point, I'm just going to say thank you very much to Mark Littlewood from the IEA and James Heal, uh, political correspondent at The Spectator and co-author with Harry Cole uh, of Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss. Uh, James and Mark, thank you both very much. Thanks for being on. Kirsty and Alice, thank you both very much indeed. Great to have you on. Alice, thanks for joining us. And Kirsty, thank you. Uh, we'll be back next week with Whitehall Sources. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of policy and policymaking and politics. You do not need to go anywhere else. We are back. We are fresher than ever for the brand new parliamentary term. Make sure you follow and subscribe, and we will speak to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.